very often when you, you walk into a church assembly, you, you grab a seat for the sermon. When onto the stage walks a preacher who's incredibly handsome, intelligent, witty, charming, funny, and deeply spiritual. Well, he's not up here right now. If you're looking for filet mignon this morning, sorry, you're, you're kind of stuck with McDonald's. Nevertheless, welcome. We're, we're glad you're here. When my wife, Shawnee, was a little girl, the, one of her very first children's books, there was a, a character that she encountered with the name Katie. And she loved the book, she loved the name, and she decided at seven years old that someday when she grew up and had a daughter, she would someday name her own daughter Katie. A couple of decades later, Shawnee was fortunate enough to find herself engaged to me. And one evening, we were sitting uh, at that fine dining establishment, Pizza Hut, daydreaming as couples do about their future. And when our server came to the table, we met a young woman who just radiated joy and sweetness. Pouring out of this teenage kid was a joy and enthusiasm that was just absolutely contagious. We joked over a Supreme Pizza that someday we should name our daughter after our food server, Lauren. Years later, our daughter, Katie, was born to a mother in a country where there are more abortions than live births and where single parenting is, is socially rejected. So refusing to abort but unable to parent, Katie's birth mom was willing to give up what she loved most for the sake of love. She gave her baby a name that translates into English roughly as clever grace. And so Chowun became Katie's other middle name, Catherine Lauren Chowun. My last name suggests that my ancestors were from Flein. They're Fleiners, immigrants from the little hamlet of Flein, Germany. My first daughter, Catherine Lauren Chowan Fleener, is named after a children's book and a Pizza Hut waitress. And by a woman who desperately wanted a better life for her baby. And a small town in Germany. Names tell a story. Mahatma Gandhi. Barack Obama. Muhammad, Adolf Hitler, Jesus, Justin Bieber. Embedded in every name is a story. And sometimes those stories might just linger long after the person is gone. Other times their names are short and quickly forgotten. But there's a story in every name. Maybe your mother named you simply because she liked the sound of your name. Maybe your, your father, in a single moment, had an idea or, or a thought or an impression of beauty that he wanted to attach to you. A being unique in all of the universe, a name that permanently connects you to a story. And names in the Bible are, are like ours. They're connected to a story. And throughout the pages of Scripture, 
People are named and, and renamed to, to, to connect them to a story. One woman, unlike loved by her husband, named her son Shimon because she longed for her husband to simply hear her. Another baby was named Lost Glory after the Israelites fought and lost a battle. One poor guy even got named Pain by his mother. But while parents in the Bible may embed stories of trauma in their children's names, there's another interesting category of baby names in Scripture. In, in just a handful of instances, God himself pulls the parents aside and commands them what to name their baby. It's this category of baby names where God himself picks out the name that I want to use as a lens to look at our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Here it is. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll unpack this text a little bit later on, but first we need to set the stage with the stories of some baby names. The story of the first name starts in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, the text says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You've heard the story by now if you've been in church any amount of time. God promises a nomadic shepherd that he and his descendants would be central to God's plans to bless all peoples. The Hebrew here reads all families. In promising such a blessing to Abraham, God commits himself to do what looks to be impossible. So impossible that we needed to hear God's perspective through the story of a baby's name. Abram obeys God, resettles 1,200 miles away from where he started, and his adventures begin. There's external forces and Abraham's own dumb choices sometimes that threaten the promise that God makes, and yet God continually intervenes to ensure Abram's success. It's not long before God appears to Abram to remind him of the promise. Abram tells God, hey, you know, descendants are good, but I don't have any children. So God takes Abram outside and has him look up and start counting stars. And he tells Abram, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Abram believes God, and the two of them go through a covenant ceremony, and God obligates himself to fulfill the promise he's made to Abram. Fast forward another 13 years. God shows up once again. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. Ah, now we're... Now we're remembering the story. And he tells them that Sarah would be having a child within one year. Abraham falls face down before God and he laughs. He laughs because he's 99 years old. He laughs because his wife Sarah is 90 years old. Later on, when Sarah hears the promise that she's going to have a child, she laughs too. God's promise to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky is met with 
laughter. It's in this very moment when Abraham is face down on the ground in the presence of God, laughing, that God gives Abraham a command. The command is to give this surprise baby a name. The name is Yitzhak, Isaac. Bust out a little Hebrew, and all of a sudden you'll understand the delightful divine joke. Isaac means laughter. Risa, if my Spanish is, is correct. God attaches the story of Abraham and Sarah's skeptical laughter to their son. But it's hard to believe that God isn't laughing too. Because in his sovereignty, he can see beyond human skepticism to the joy that his plans are going to bring. See, God's vision stretches all the way into the future past an empty grave. And God sets that plan in motion with Isaac. The creator of the universe doesn't have a physical body, but if he did, I wonder if there would be a twinkle in his eye and a slight smile on his lips. As he tells Abram, uh, Abraham to name his baby Laughter. Everyone gets to be on the divine joke when this baby is born. What would, what would it be like, do you think, for Isaac? Laughter. And his parents, for this child to carry the weight of the promise of God on his shoulders. You can imagine the conversation in the middle of the night, right? A hungry baby screaming to be fed. Sarah rolls over, shakes Abraham on the shoulder, and says, laughter's hungry. And Abraham says, the walker's on your side of the bed. And you're nine years younger. You're only 91. You get up. You feed him. Laughter had to be a bit of an ironic name. When the joyful child of promise comes in with a skinned knee or a broken arm, there's an awe-filled sweetness in imagining a little kid named Laughter bringing joy to this elderly couple when the living God is actively using that child to alter the cosmos. But if we follow Isaac's story just a bit further, the sweetness disappears, and we feel the weight of an irony that doesn't make anyone laugh. Laughter becomes agony. When God has this conversation with Abraham in Genesis 22. Here it is. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, well, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, laughter, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. How delightful is the name laughter? As Abraham sits around a, a cook fire late at night, sharpening his knife for the three-day trip. Where, where's the divine humor as Abraham saddles a donkey and chops wood for the sacrifice? There's not a lot of comedy as he dips a slow-burning firebrand in, into the ashes to get it smoldering. Where's the joke as Abraham, three days later, piles the wood on Isaac's shoulders and they walk up the hill to the place of sacrifice? When Isaac asks, hey, Dad, We've got the fire. We've got the wood. All the stuff for worship. Where's the sacrifice? It's not laughter that Abraham is choking back as he says to Isaac, God himself will provide the burnt offering, my son. 
And there's no smile or delight as Abraham prepares to plunge the knife into laughter. But you remember the story. Abraham never gets a chance to bring the knife down because an angel intervenes. And Abraham spies a ram in some bushes and he does a quick swap out. And Isaac's life is spared for the moment. In that moment, in that exchange, Abraham's faith cements his position, and God is pleased. God is so pleased that he's going to break out a new simile, a new image for Abraham's descendants. They'll be as numerous, God says, as sand on the seashore. Keep your eye on the beach sand. That's going to be important later. But for now... Abraham's son escapes the sacrifice, and the promise of laughter survives. We needed to hear the story of Isaac to hear the story of these next three names. We need to fast forward another 1,400 years to get to the next group of names. Abraham's descendants, you know your biblical history, they've expanded from a family to a people to a nation. And the Hebrews have a unified nation for a while under one king, and but they quickly fragment into a couple of kingdoms. And by the 8th century before Jesus, the political situation is deteriorating as foreign powers from all around threaten the Hebrews. And spiritually, they're not that much better off. In his goodness, his mercy, and his patience, God continually moves the Hebrews toward the obedience and relationship that they need. Sometimes he he nudges them gently. Other times he just shoves them forcefully. Oh, but Abraham's descendants are stubborn. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. And they've ignored God. And as a result, they've engaged in all sorts of things inconsistent with their identity. Idolatry, immorality, injustice. For the Hebrews to remain loyal to God seems impossible. So impossible that we need once again to hear God's perspective through some baby names. The story starts with a prophet by the name of Hosea. In the first book, verse of the book bearing Hosea's name, our prophet is given a quick introduction. In the second verse of the book, we are immediately scandalized We're horrified by the implications of a command that God places on the life of Hosea. It's a command that feels disgusting and cruel, even while it impresses us with its shrewd insight. What kind of command could God possibly give a prophet that can shock and amaze us? God tells Hosea whom to marry. God doesn't tell Hosea that the name of the woman that he is supposed to marry. He tells him the kind of woman he is supposed to marry. God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. God takes Hosea's life and turns it into a public drama. Public theater where Hosea plays the part of God and his unfaithful wandering wife Gomer plays the part of the people of Israel. And as if this isn't appalling enough to take a couple and display the chaos of their married life to the community, God takes it a step further. God tells Hosea to create a family with Gomer, to father children and to pull them into this divine theater of the absurd. 
Children who are tainted by an unfaithful mother are used as an object lesson to make a spiritual point. And to make sure that this divine drama sticks and that everyone in the community knows exactly the parts that Hosea's children play, God himself chooses the names of Hosea's children. In all of Scripture, God commands parents what to name children only eight times. Three of those names belong to Hosea's children. But there's no excitement in these names. There's no laughter. Only the raw pain of betrayal. Here's the first name in Hosea chapter 1. Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. God has Hosea name his first son Jezreel after the location of a massacre of a royal family. Jehu was a Hebrew king who took the throne by slaughtering every member of the royal dynasty that came before him because he just wanted them out of the way. And by naming the baby Jezreel, God was putting Israel, uh, his, the royal leaders on notice that there was another massacre coming because of the people's rebellion. Hosea and Gomer go on to have a second child. And as soon as Gomer delivers a little baby girl, God shows up with his, his list of baby names. What do you name a little baby girl? There's a story in every name. Here's Hosea 1.6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Loruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. We can translate the name Loruhamah as no more mercy. The story that God wants Israel to hear through a baby's name is that he's finished. He's done with the, the headstrong defiance of the people. When any relationship revolves around love, mercy comes naturally. Overlooking the faults of someone you care about may not always be easy, but it's, it's just normal in a healthy relationship. But relationships are a two-way street. And that's true as well for God's relationship with Israel. That's why Hosea is playing the part of God in this story. God has been the perfect husband in this relationship. He's understanding, he's tolerant, he's kind. He patiently endures betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. Not because he's some doormat enabling codependency, but because he chooses to love past Israel's disloyalty. But through Hosea and Gomer, Israel has to learn that they have reached the limits of God's forgiveness. The people are about to realize that there is no more mercy. The relationship between God and his people is all but dead in the book of Hosea. And God captures the disintegration of that relationship with the name of Hosea's third child. Here it is, Hosea 1, 8, and 9. After she had weaned Laruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. In what should have been the most terrifying thing that the Israelites could possibly have heard, God tells them through the name of a child that he's breaking up. 
He's taking his name, and he and the people are going to go their separate ways. God's people aren't his people anymore. What does it take to capture the spiritual attention and the commitment of people who just don't care? How is it possible to capture and express the, the pain of spiritual betrayal? For God, it's apparently baby names. God chooses names of children that will grow up in the streets playing, carrying names that are an unavoidable reminder that the people are going to get what they've asked for. They're going to get what they deserve. Separation from the God who wants them. Three baby names that tell a story. Jezreel, a massacre is coming. Luruhamah, no mercy. And Loami, not my people. You've heard these names before. You can hear 1 Peter 2 in the background, can't you? The Spirit, through the Apostle Peter tucked the drama of Hosea's family nicely into the text we're looking at. Listen for Hosea's story in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people, Canoe Creek, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter reveals the brilliant brutality of Hosea's story. Like Hosea's children, we ourselves have lived as the product of betrayal. And God, in his holiness, is absolutely justified in leaving us to the results of our own disobedience. God, it would be completely fair to give us what we've asked for and what we deserve. But Hosea and Peter both remind us that our story doesn't end there. The story of Jezreel, Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhamah, doesn't end with God's rejection. If we jump back to Hosea, right after God names Lo-Ami, he brings up, of all things, beach sand. Here's what he says in Hosea 1 verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will, will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. God rounds out the story behind the names of Hosea's children by reminding us all the way back to Isaac that he once named a baby laughter. The sand on the seashore is the giveaway. It's a throwback to God's promises in Genesis 22. Abraham's willingness and obedience when he's told to sacrifice Isaac results in God using the impossibility of counting sand to describe the number of Abraham's descendants. Even in the midst of the rejection of the, of the people in Hosea, God remembers. He recalls that he once made a promise about laughter. This is the beauty of God's love and grace. Our father can't help but return to laughter. 
Bible names are connected to a story. And when someone is renamed in Scripture, buckle in and prepare for the story to change. When turning points happen and someone stands on the edge of a new, greater story, a name change in the Bible very often isn't far behind. Abraham, Jacob, Paul, Peter, and so many others saw saw their stories expand and deepen and they became more significant than they could ever have imagined. And you and I, as God's people, have been renamed. Not my people in Hosea has become people of God in 1 Peter. No more mercy becomes you have received mercy. Jezreel becomes, Peter doesn't mention Jezreel. What are we supposed to do with that? Just this. A lot of stories in Scripture come out of Jezreel. The Jezreel Valley in northern Israel was the location of lots and lots of slaughter, lots of battles in ancient Israel. And on the northern edge of the Jezreel Valley is a a small mountain range that, that overlooks the land below. In Bible times, little villages dotted this mountain range here and there. And one of the larger villages was a little town named Nazareth. And God's message to his people through Hosea is that his people will receive mercy through a leader who comes out of Jezreel. You can connect the dots here. The laughter of joyous promise and rejection rooted in betrayal. Maybe this is where we get to talk about another time. That God told some parents what to name their baby. You know his name. You know his story. Your heavenly father had an idea. A beauty that he was determined to create and attach to us. A community unique in all the universe. A name that permanently connects us to a story. It's fair. It's reasonable to admit that you might not hear the laughter in these stories. Where's the laughter when God takes Abraham's life and turns it into a drama? Into public theater in which Abraham plays the part of God himself and Isaac plays the part of Jesus. But instead of a knife, it's a cross and instead of a boy, it's the promised son, the Messiah, the Christ, the one anointed or or chosen to be the sacrifice. Where's the laughter in that? Where's the laughter in a prophet, a prostitute, and three children used as living object lessons? Where's the the humor in finding ourselves in in the twisted mirror that is Hosea's family? An honest encounter with the book of Hosea leaves us staring at a reflection of our own stubborn rebellion and the apathetic acceptance of our own indifference. We realize through Gomer that we deserve neither mercy nor love from God. We ourselves would shatter the promise of God. Where's the laughter in that? The laughter comes from our view on this side of the cross. We call it the gospel. The good news rooted in the completed work of Christ. 
The gospel is laughter because it's destroyed death. The very thing that terrifies and burdens humanity the most has become a joke because God himself, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and raised on the third day. What's not to laugh about? The weight of our war against sin and death has been taken off of our shoulders. How does all this play out for us? How do we internalize and apply the reality of the gospel? Well, that's the no-brainer part. The names that the gospel have given us point to what's most important about our part of the story. We could think through together how the, being a people manifests itself in this thing we call community and how the gospel compels us to center our community and build it on no other foundation than Christ. We have been named a royal priesthood, as Peter tells us, after all. We could also unpack morality, and we could look at character and behavior, and we could make an effort to dig into those corners of our hearts where we still secretly nurture some disobedience. We've been named a holy nation, after all, and we're in the business of transforming into the person in the image and likeness of Christ. We could also discuss worship, the life-consuming purpose that we've been given of revolving our life together as a, a community, as a church, around our master and king. We've been named a people belonging to God, after all, and we're in the business. We exist to declare God's praises. Your name tells a story. The story that ugly rebellion and sin and death have been crushed by the laughter of promise. The best thing that you can do is to own that story by living out your new name. And have a laugh at God's expense. Let's pray. Father, thank you for renaming us. Through your spirit, empower us to live out who you created us to be, a people, a priesthood, a holy nation. Father, we praise you for your love and mercy, and we give you the highest glory for connecting us to your story through the work of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.